You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You want to know who lost World War Z? Wales. I guess they never really had much of a chance. Not with several million hungry boat people and half the world's navies converted to fishing fleets. It didn't take much. Just one helo drop torp. Not so close as to do any physical damage, but just enough to leave them deaf and dazed. They wouldn't notice the factory ships until it was too late. You could hear it from miles away. The warhead detonations and the shrieks. Nothing conducts sound like water energy. So the next time someone tries to tell you about how the true losses of this war are our innocence or part of our humanity, whatever, bro. Tell it to the whales. Max Brooks has been a writer for Saturday Night Live. He's the author of The Zombie Survival Guide, Complete Protection from the Living Dead, World War Z, An Oral History of the Zombie War, and The Zombie Survival Guide, Recorded Attacks, a graphic novel adaptation of pieces from The Zombie Survival Guide. Thank you for joining me, Max. Thank you. Good to be here. Max, let's start with The Zombie Survival Guide. This is your first book. What possessed you to bless us with complete protection from the undead? I think possessed is a very good word. Uh, I was always afraid of zombies, and I used to wonder what it would be like if they were real and swarming through the city, and I had to defend myself. And the first thing I did was go looking for uh, a book to tell me about how to protect myself, and there wasn't one. And I thought, well, maybe I should write one myself. So I really wrote it to read it. Now, uh, tell us about your experience with zombies as a kid. Um, did you see a movie that like really like shocked you at too young an age? I've seen a couple zombie movies that terrified me. Uh, one, obviously, was Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and then Dawn of the Dead. Even scarier, I think. The, the original or the uh, remake? The original. By far, the original. Then I saw uh, an Italian zombie film. I think it was called Night of the Zombies. I can't remember. But it was zombie footage mixed in with real uh, documentary footage of cannibalism in New Guinea. And when you're 12 years old and you're watching Showtime After Hours, that'll give you nightmares. I imagine so. At the age of 12. Wow. (laughs) So... When you went around looking for a book to help protect you from zombies, did you look at, like, uh, survivalist guides and, and, you know, um, how to survive after World War III books? That was my inspiration. I wrote Zombie Survival Guide during the Y2K scare. Mm, Okay. Uh, That's when all the survival guides were coming out. And I realized, well, what about zombies? That's certainly scarier to me than all the banks melting. So uh, basically, that, that's what I did, was, uh, was reach into real survivalism, try and make it as realistic as possible. Well, we've had the banks melt, and that hasn't been too much of a problem, so I guess zombies are next up on the plate. Could be. <laughs> Tell us uh, about uh, doing some of the research for this, because it's a, for a book that, when you look see this zombie survival guide, you think, what? What? And, and you look at it, it really is a great guide for, for 
creating zombies. So how did you go about constructing this book? I just tried to write a real survival guide. Uh, if I were writing a wilderness survival guide, that mm -hmm. would be the format. If I was writing, say, uh, a military manual, uh, same thing. So I went about it with the straightforward format of a manual. Uh, and that was sort of my, my lighthouse in this process. Now, um, you've, your zombies are fairly... There's a varieties of zombies. Um, we have the I walked with a zombie zombie, which are the kind of Haitian voodoo zombies, and you address those in that book. And we have the George Romero hands in front of them stumbling towards you, Night of the Living Dead zombies, which are more what yours are. Yes, mine are more of the Romero flesh eaters, mm -hmm. which is actually the original term for them. Mm -hmm. uh, when the movie came out, Night of the Living Dead, uh, actually, when Romero wrote the script, it was called Night of the Flesh Eaters. And the word zombie is never used in the movie. Mm. Uh, so the term zombie is actually a misnomer. It really does apply more to the voodoo corpses uh, that are raised by dark magic and are then used as slave labor. Now, your zombies are raised by something rather different. And I think there's an interesting aspect in all your books of the hot zone and disease terror fiction. Disease apocalypses are quite frightening. Uh, could you talk about some of your experiences just reading about disease apocalypse? Well, you know, I'm 37. So I went through my adolescence at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And that was pretty scary. And the idea that there was a disease out there that could kill you but was completely preventable. It was not airborne. It wasn't even easy to get. And yet, because of the complete bungling of the people we voted to protect us, uh, the genie got out of the bottle and we'll never get it back in again. And when you're a kid, uh, it's terrifying to watch, to watch friends die and die a horrible, horrible death from something that could have been prevented by a pamphlet. Wow. Well, that's certainly true. And that scenario plays out in a much more gruesome form in your novel, World War Z. Having written a piece of nonfiction, now your nonfiction book, um, you have a whole survival guide. So tell us a little bit about the parts. You, we have, you talk about the zombies and describe the kind of taxonomy of, of zombies. T tell us about just writing that as, you know, a straight-faced piece of fact. Because it's both funny and kind of creepily scary the, when you read it like that, kind of like an, in a manual form. Well, I tried to make it as real as possible. I tried to make it that if you didn't know zombies were real and you picked up the book, uh, you would say, oh, well, I know how to protect myself. And the truth is, I didn't write it to be published, so I didn't feel I had to upload it with coolness. I didn't have to put in things for dramatic effect. I could be as straight and as true to the, uh, the format of a manual as possible. Now, you, you obviously did quite a bit of research for this, uh, and your take on, for, for example, weaponry, you, you take us, in all of your survivalist instincts, seem to ratchet back time a bit and ratchet back technology a bit. So tell us a little bit about the kind of weapons that are effective against your zombies. And describe your zombies. I mean, what exactly is a zombie in your world? Well, I'm describing uh, basically a, a walking corpse. Uh, not intelligent, no memories, not really very good skills, very slow, very clumsy, uh, can barely climb, but their advantage is their numbers, and their advantage is that they're relentless. They will never tire, they will never sleep, so there's no point in boarding up your doors and windows because they eventually will batter them down. So when I discuss weapons, 
I discuss very specific weapons to that threat, such as um, I say that guns need bullets, and there's a lot of zombies out there. So how many bullets could you possibly use? I prefer something like uh, a machete. And then when people say, well, don't you have to get in close? I say, exactly. So don't get close to them. This is not a zombie hunting guide. This is a zombie survival guide. The goal is to get away from them and fight only when you have to. It, it interests me that when you are ta talking about you know our current dependence on technology, we're so shrouded by technology, your books really want to strip that away, don't they? Well, you know, I talk about always having a little bit of self-reliance in your back pocket. You know, I, I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong in living in a technological, uh, very tightly woven global society that we live in. I think it's great. Uh, I don't know where my iPod comes from. It could have been made by Kim Jong-il's mother, and it probably was, and that's fine. But when the power goes out, uh, when the services aren't there, I think it's nice to know what to do. And I think that comes from growing up in Southern California and preparing for earthquake drills and knowing that at any moment the services we depend on could just flick off. The other thing you talk about, too, is you talk about, you know, where to live, and you bring up an interesting point. I was just talking with Margaret Atwood about her novels, Oryx and Crake and Year of the Flood. And one theme that's coming back now is the idea of castles. A man's home is his castle. But that's not just a nice place to live, is it? Well, you know, castles were built at a time when all social order had broken down. Rome had collapsed, and uh, state security went as far as your doorstep. And so it was as a time where physical defense was more important than national defense. You know, I like to say that we live in the culture of what's called the yellow line defense, which is don't cross that yellow line, because uh, if you do, the cops will come. But what if the cops aren't there anymore? Then you need something physical, steel and concrete. And so uh, that's what you would need in a zombie world. All the planes and, and big big vehicles, those aren't as good for us as, as like a bicycle or a motorcycle, huh? Well, well you know, people say to me, uh, they like to tell me what kind of vehicle they would use mm -hmm. to escape. You know, what, what kind of Hummer or all-terrain vehicle. And I say, that's great. Are you a licensed mechanic? And they say, no. And I say, okay, well, tell me how many moving parts are in the average internal combustion engine? And they don't know. And I say, neither do I. But I do know that it only takes a few to break, and then you're stuck. So I definitely advocate a simple approach. A bicycle, anybody can fix. Uh, it's light, it's easy, you can pick it up, you can carry it over a barricade. I think, you know, we live in a very specialized society where if you lose one specialist or one link in the chain, uh, the whole chain itself snaps. And I, I think that's sort of the message of Zombie Survival Guide. The end of the book is a long list of uh, historical incidents involving zombies. And this is a really interesting approach, I think, because you kind of weave them into history and we're not really sure. I'm not, I mean, you know, I, it's been a while since I've had my world history, so I don't know about all these events. Could you talk about uh, researching your zombies so you could kind of slot them into the places where, where history has a, enough space for a zombie attack? Well, what I did was on my own knowledge of history because I'm a history nerd before I'm a, a science fiction nerd. History was the only subject I was any good at and so what I did was uh, explore the idea of other cultures that came before us dealing with the living dead. What would a culture that didn't have guns and airplanes and tanks 
what would they do to survive? And I thought that was interesting to, to draw that up and see sort of what cultures would survive and what would collapse. And, and you know, as a, a written book, it's kind of interesting because the the zombie survival guide, its existence by what it tells you, there's a kind of a story implicit in in the book, and then there are little short stories at the end of the book and I think you have a very interesting sense of stories particularly at the end of the book some of the things are just like snippets that hint at some aspect of of zombies could you talk about but the whole work creates this kind of you know atmosphere of a world in which there are zombies and you know there's a kind of a big story behind this piece of nonfiction you know so talk about creating a story with nonfiction well I think when you do a piece of nonfiction, you have to be true to it and damn the consequences. Uh, certain stories I, I f- drew or, or I wrote uh, in detail, and some I left very small because that's the way it really is. If you were writing a, a book about shark attacks, some shark attacks would be extremely detailed and some would be very minor, depending on the information you have. So that's where I was going. I wanted to risk people saying, oh, well, he didn't. He didn't expand on that. That's lame. So th- that's really that's what you do when, when you do nonfiction. You have to be very in character and risk people not liking it. Now, the zombie is typically associated with the horror genre, I think, um, because the again the the I walked with the zombie zombies. Those are you know the result of supernatural intervention. George Romero's zombies, on the other hand, were they didn't. He didn't spend a lot of time explaining them. We saw a couple, like about 30 seconds, about a satellite coming down, and that was it. You go into a little bit more detail, and you mentioned that you are a science fiction geek, and I think that's interesting because your your zombies novels really have all your work here has very much the feel of science fiction and not horror. Yeah, my, my intention was never to scare. I, I always say that I'm not a horror fan. I'm an anti-horror fan. If anything, a zombie survival guide was created to relieve horror from people who are already scared of zombies. I wasn't trying to scare people. Uh, that's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> uh, let's talk about World War Z, which is uh, your magnus opus, so to speak. Uh, and it is, very much. It's uh, This is a, a superb piece of writing that shows exactly what you can do with a, a, a simple science fiction twist. This is a book that gives us a picture of the world as it is today through your zombie filter. And I think it's a really interesting uh, work. What made you decide to take the format of an oral history? One of my favorite books has always been The Good War by Studs Terkel. And I loved his exploration of the Second World War, which, raised as I was, as we all were, the Second World War was very black and white. Heroes, villains, happy ending, uh, simple. And the interviews that he collected really painted this war in amazing shades of gray. And that's what I wanted to do. It was, it was the plurality of the voices, the difference uh, that I wanted to do, that I wanted to recreate in World War Z. I wanted to tell a zombie story affecting our planet as a planet. And I wanted to get as many voices in there as I could. It's it's really a remarkable work because it takes place in practically every country in the world, every culture, and a lot of languages. 
when you decided to write this, did you just sit down and start writing, or did you go out and bathe in, you know, years of research? Uh, I did a little bit of both. You know, for me, there's two kinds of research. There's the kind of research that must be done in order to move along the plot, that in order to move along the story. And then there's the kind of background research that you can go back and and fill in, and it really isn't that important. You know, uh, for example, if I'm talking about a soldier fighting zombies, and if the type of gun he is using is very indicative to the story, then I have to do my research before. If, on the other hand, it's not, I can just write in a couple X's, find out what assault weapons the U.S. Army is using, and then go back and plug it in. So the research was unending, consistently. Uh, I did about two years, maybe a little bit more, of uh, I'm Amazon.com should pay me for the amount of books that I bought from them. <laughs> I, it seemed. Did you do do much traveling to write this? I have uh, not to write it. I have I have traveled to about half the countries that were in the book, so I could just pull from memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some that I hadn't been to, uh, I was very nervous about. So the amount of maps that I bought and atlases and satellite downloads. I used to joke with my wife that if the FBI ever raided my office, it would it would look like a terror cell. <laughs> it, yeah, you got to be careful about taking pictures these days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, my, my office had nothing but maps and charts and books about weapons and armies. Yeah, it, it looked pretty dangerous. Uh, I, I'm hoping that you don't have any vials of the Solanum virus that you're going to unleash upon it's the world. In, not here. <laughs> One of the things that that uh, I think uh, makes this book so compelling and, and so believable is uh, the idea of this as a as an outbreak as a as a virus. And we did you have had you read the Hot Zone? Uh, I hadn't read the Hot Zone, mm-hmm. but I'd studied viruses, mm-hmm. and remember this was in the wake of SARS. Mm-hmm. So okay, that was sort of my template. Was I needed an outbreak that would start in a populous country, but a country that had control over its media. And there's only one country in the world that has that, which is China. You know, every other country with a massive population has some form of free press. Uh, You couldn't do this in America. It couldn't start in America or Europe or Japan or even India. So that's why I chose China. And that was sort of the impetus of how it escaped. And that's pretty much what happened with SARS. Yeah, that's well. No, that's very interesting. Um, and, and being a disease, that's one of the things I think that makes the the zombies so interest your zombies so interesting, because when we look at them and when the, when the people in here see the risen bodies coming after them, there it's a human body, and we assume that it's human. But what's really happening is this is just essentially a germ, a disease, a virus that has grown arms, legs, has good control of a human body, and has a pretty serious uh, appetite for living human flesh. That is exactly why I write about zombies. You really you hit the zombie on the head with that. Uh, zombies scare me because they act viral. They're not predators. Being a predator implies some sort of intelligence and some sort of knowledge of your surroundings. Uh, a tiger or a shark will only kill as much as it can before it leaves the rest of us alone to repopulate. A virus will just spread and spread and spread, and there's no intelligence and there's no gray area to negotiate. Uh, it is mindless, and it's the mindlessness. It's the, the lethal biologic imperative that frightens me so much about viruses. So you're right. Put arms and legs on them and snapping teeth, and you've got a zombie.
and, and of course, or you have a, a football stadium full of fans. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference. And, and I think that's one of the, the things that, that attracts us to books of zombies is that um, we see that in, this, in your novel, they're sometimes indistinguishable from humans. And when we look around us, sometimes it's just on the bus or walking down the street. You kind of, you will just think, what is that zombie in front of me doing? Why don't they start driving their damn car? I think also the reason zombies are so popular right now is I think we're living in in constant anxiety of the apocalypse. You know, we're living in times of global warming and a financial meltdown, uh, two wars and terrorism and an energy crisis. And I think people need a place to put all that anxiety. And zombies are apocalyptic. You can't just have one. You know, they're not like a werewolf where one can stalk the darkness. You need to have billions of zombies breaking down society and tearing up the planet. And I think that's a really good vessel for all our fears. Yeah, that, there, there's, there's an interesting uh, way of looking at the popularity of zombies because they, they are really popular. And it's not like a vampire where you think they, you know, they have some kind of sexual attraction or there's something, you know, they live forever. No, this is a rotting corpse on two feet that only wants to eat your brains. That's exactly it. I, I think that 10 years ago at the height of the Clinton era when things were just great, Nobody cared about zombies. Nobody wanted to think about the end of the world. But I think nowadays, the end of the world is on everybody's mind. You know, what if? What if something happens? And you can't look at that straight on. It's like a solar eclipse. You have to look at it, you know, through some sort of protective prism. I think that's where zombie books and movies come in. You know, you can read World War Z, and it's about the end of the world. But you can say, oh, well, thank God that's fake. You couldn't do that if you read a book, say, about a flu virus that suddenly went lethal. Or Randy Schultz and the band played on. Exactly. Yeah, and the band played on. That's a terrifying book. My God. Or The Day After. You watch The Day After. When I was a kid, The Day After came out, and our teachers sent home notes to our parents saying, do not let your child watch this show. Because it was just too real. Whereas World War Z or, or Zombieland, the new movie that's out, or the remake of Dawn of the Dead, you watch it, you say, oh my God, it's the apocalypse. But then at the end of the day, you say, ah, it ain't ever going to happen. We hope so far. Oh, yeah. When I saw that this is, you know, here we got the World War Z. It's a book about zombies and the apocalypse. It's not really very gory or even in a way particularly violent, I didn't find. You know, I, I wanted to write something that... that I couldn't find out there. And there's plenty of zombie books out there, and they all have a lot of entrails being ripped out. And that was never the thing that scared me. When I saw the original Dawn of the Dead, what truly terrified me were the scenes where they're just hole up in the mall and they're just watching television, and they're watching society break down, and they're watching the experts lose their minds. My God, the idea that, that our parents, our gods, the authorities, the people in charge, they're not running the show anymore. That's infinitely more terrifying than somebody getting bitten in the neck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, this book is an, is an oral history, and you have an interview style in here. And there's one character who runs through the whole thing, but very much in the background. Tell us about your, your narrator. He gives himself a little, couple pages at the, at the front. He's, uh, he's like Studs Terkel. He's just collecting stories. 
and he wants to stay out of it as much as possible because it's not about him. He's he's our catalyst, and and that's what I wanted to I wanted to keep him in the background. Now, a, as you wrote this book, one of the things I think that's very effective is the orchestration of the stories. There are different forms of stories in here. This, in many ways, this is a, simply a collection of short stories. I'll, albeit it has a enough of a flowing theme. To, it has the feel of a novel, but it has also the feel of some short stories in there, too. Um, could you talk about orchestrating the emotions in the stories? Because I think it's very beautifully orchestrated, actually. Thank you. Um, well, I, I was trying to put a human face on everybody, and I, I think that was sort of the theme of the novel or of the, of the stories was that it's us versus them. It's literally the humans versus the inhuman. And I wanted everyone to have a, a specific point of view, even the ones that I would disagree with and I knew the readers would disagree with. They need to have some sort of humanity. And, and I'm thinking of Grover Carlson. Yeah, ironically, Grover Carlson... The conversation with Grover Carlson, who is the government official, explaining mm -hmm. that, look, governments are, can't just solve every problem, and you, you can only do what you can do. That is taken almost verbatim from a real discussion I had with someone in the government uh, discussing the disasters of, I think it was Iraq at the time, and she basically said, you know, look, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, g governments can only do so much. I, we were discussing body armor, and I said, our troops don't have enough body armor. She said, oh, they always have enough. They have enough body armor. That's just a PR fiasco. Uh, so a lot of these stories, actually all these stories, were taken from real history. I, I didn't make any of it up. <laughs> just put in the zombies. And, and it does have that feel of, of history, you know, remixed with, with zombies. One of the things that, that struck me uh, was that what you do in terms of creating characters, this is like the zombie character lab. You, you, it, it's like a kit. You know, you, you have you have a character over here, and you put them in the test tube full of boiling zombies, and then listen to them while they while they disintegrate. It's it's right. I I wanted the book not so much to be about the zombies, but how we react to the zombies, and I think that that's the part that gets me excited about anything having to do with zombies. The zombies are, they're just, they're just the sounding board for us. How do we as a species react in a crisis? You have a, a variety of characters here, and, and the voices all seem very distinct and, and different. You, you, you know, there, there's a lot of different languages in here. There's a lot of very, very different characters. When you sat down to compose each of these, did you like write each of them in one big lump sitting, you know, glued to the typewriter? Or did you like, what, did they stretch over a couple days? What I did was, writing the first draft, mm -hmm. I wrote whatever character was the loudest in my head, whatever was the clearest and whatever spoke to me. I had, they were all rattling around in there and the ones that shouted, tell my story first, was the one I told. So I didn't tell it in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And I really lived with this character and really got to know them and made them as clear as I could. And then I would move on which made for a wonderful experience in the first draft. And the second draft was a nightmare because then I had to go back and edit them all into a comprehensive story. You know, they had repeated themselves or there was a point that was lost, so the editing was tough. But I really wanted to give each character their moment in the sun and pretend like this wasn't part of a bigger book. You know, this is their chance. Did you have a timeline or a kind of a database of who did what, where, and what happened when? A little bit, yeah. I, I tried to sort of put in the basic events 
And that's actually what happened when I got into the second draft was, oh, wait a minute, this guy's talking about something that hadn't happened yet. Or I haven't interviewed this guy yet, so we don't know about something. Uh, so yeah, trying to organize them all was a lot harder. I, I would imagine so. And, and I, I love the one of the themes here is um, we it, it comes out in the Yonkers incident. So tell us about the Yonkers incident, which is the kind of the little bighorn of of the zombie world. It is Yonkers is it's the moment where the United States government tries to put all its eggs in one basket and wipe out the living dead in one stand-up pitched battle. Uh, using every big weapon at its disposal. And and it's supposedly, the goal is a psychological victory as much as a military victory. The goal is to show the world, show the American people that we are in control. And the battle goes disastrously wrong and boomerangs to the point that it shows the world and the American people that they are not in control. And I base the military aspect on a battle fought in South Africa between the British Army and the Zulus. Zulu, one of my favorite movies. That's Boy, right. I remember that one. Well, there was a uh, there was a battle called Islanawana, mm-hmm. where the British Army uh, faced off against the Zulus, and the Brits had the Martini Henry 50 caliber rifle, and they had cannons and rockets and artillery, horses, steel, and they were just massacred because of many aspects. There's a million things that can go wrong in a battle. And mm-hmm. I think in America, you know, we're very technologically oriented. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to point out that just because you have firepower and technology does not a victory make. No, and, and the other thing that I think is a recurring theme in this book is the importance of the psychological victory. And, and you talk about this in, in a, a number of ways. Um, the, the, tell us about uh, the um, history, the, the movie maker. I, I really liked his story, too. Well, I wanted to do a mo- I wanted to have a propagandist, mm-hmm. and and I based him on a Hollywood filmmaker. You can plug in whoever you want, but I wanted him to be very important in telling stories that would arouse people uh, and inspire them. And I think inspiration in any kind of crisis is so important. And so I told the story of uh, a psychological condition that would kill people where they would literally, they'd be fine physically, they would just blow out their candles and go to bed, and they'd just never wake up because they'd given up all hope. And you read about that in wars, where people just give up hope. They just say it's not worth it. And I think hope is so important, and inspiration is so important. I, you know, we're very emotional, psychological beings, as much as we are physical. And I really wanted to focus on the kind of person that could save lives with just an idea. And I love the, there's one phrase in here where you say, it's a lie called hope. Yes, because this character exposes the truth uh, about hope, which hope is an absolute lie. When someone says to you, everything's going to be all right, most people have no idea if something's going to be all right. Your doctor doesn't know. He's pretty sure. Your parents are pretty sure. And our president maybe is pretty sure. But the point is, sometimes you've got to tell someone they're going to be all right because you've done all you can do. And that was the message. And also because they have to get, have some reason to go in that direction. And by telling them that, you give them a reason to even think in that direction as opposed to thinking that, well, I think they're gonna go to sleep and never wake up direction. Right, you have to give people in crisis a reason to live. You have to give them a light at the end of the tunnel or they will just lie down. You also explore the economic 
aspects of of, uh, of a zombie or almost any other apocalypse. I mean, we if if we have a field mouse apocalypse uh, and they go crazy and take us down, uh, we'll be ready because we can look at your book and we can create the Department of Strategic Resources. Tell us about distress. Well, I I tried to deal with the economics of war. Uh, because that nobody ever really talks about that in in movies and books. It's always about the front lines, and it's never about the tremendous infrastructure behind a country waging war. Uh, we won World War II. One of the main reasons we won the Second World War was because we had access to the entire world for resources, and we had a huge industrial base and a logistics base. Find the stuff, turn it into weapons, get those weapons to the guys who need them. That's how you win a war. And I thought, well, in a zombie apocalypse, when they have most of the world, how would we wage war? And that is really a question that no one's ever dealt with, and I wanted to answer it. I think you did a, a, a fabulous job working out um, all the details. And I think, too, that for all the kind of big-picture stuff that you put in this book, you put in some really nice and charming small-picture portraits to kind of balance it out. And as you said, give it that human aspect. I'm thinking of, of uh, Kondo Tatsumi and Tamogo Ijiro, the, the, the geek and the gardener. Yeah, I, I wanted to <clears throat> put some stories in Japan, and we have these two, two characters. One is a Japanese computer geek who lives his whole life on the Internet and never leaves his bedroom which is actually a real psychological condition in Japan. I researched this, that some kids are not leaving their bedrooms. They're literally, they have such social anxiety that they just stay online all day. So that's what this kid does, and he doesn't even know his parents are gone. He watches the zombie apocalypse through the internet until it's too late, and they're right outside his door, and he has to literally climb down the balconies to escape. And our other character is a much older man, an older gardener who's been blinded at Nagasaki, and he abandons his home wanders through the wilderness and ironically can fight zombies very well because they are slow and he can hear them coming. Uh, and so the two of them at the very end team up together in this very unlikely duo. Now you mentioned zombies are slow, but they're not always slow in your book. You have some fast zombies and this is a, this is a, a, an important point among uh, in Zombiana uh, is, is the faster slow zombie debate. Now where do you come down for the most I, part? I, I come in favor of slow. I have faster zombies, but mm -hmm. there, there are no running zombies in my books. There is no running, jumping, cartwheeling zombies. There's no thriller dancing zombies. Uh, they're, they're pretty slow and slouchy. <laughs> well, I'm glad they're not dancing. I think that would uh, take away from the uh, some of the... No, no. Um, we, we also, uh, you talk about this idea of, of total war, and that's that's the real threat of this of this zombie apocalypse is that it's not just in a sense it's not really a war is it it's the kind of war that you would fight against uh, a disease in your body you know throughout history people use the expression total war we're giving it our all and that's just not true you're giving it as much as you want to give but what if we were to come up against an enemy that literally was actively engaging total war. All of them were combatants. There was no non-combatants. Uh, they were all fighting every minute of every day. They weren't sleeping. They weren't eating. They weren't taking time out. They, Every single one of them, every minute of every day was fighting us. That's really total war. And that's really what I wanted to get through in the book was we think we're waging total war, but we haven't met the living dead yet. One, one thing we, we do meet in your book 
are some really, uh, I think, beautifully crafted character pieces. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Christina Iliopoulos and Terry Knox in the International Space Station. I mean, of the many things I ex- reactions I expect to have to a, a book about a zombie apocalypse, like sentimental tears is not among them, but you really manage that in this book, I think, w- pretty well. And it, it's, again, I think this is part of your orchestration of the stories that we get kind of an upsurge of these more, I guess, I'd ha- I hate to use this word, uplifting stories towards the end. Yeah, I, uh, sometimes I get criticized for being uplifting. People say, uh, oh, you know, you're, a lot of other zombie novels are, are, are just just the end of the world. And, and why are you so, one, one person called it rosy. <laughs> I don't know if I'd use rosy, but. <laughs> Neither would I. And I say to him, well, the Soviets won World War II, but I would hardly call it rosy, <laughs> 25 million dead. Uh, yeah, I, I do give it an uplifting message because the point is, you know, I think a lot of people like horror because deep down they feel safe and they want to scare themselves because they know that, that life is safe and the world is safe. And I don't feel that way. I think that, that the world is as safe as we make it. And I think, you know, every day is a fight. You got to get up and you got to be optimistic. And so, yeah, the, the book is inspirational. Now, we have a, a new book by you, which is The Zombie Attacks. It's, these are some of the recorded attacks from the end of your zombie survival guide. Yeah, what it is, it's an adaptation. It's a, it's a, what I've done is take some of the stories at the back of the zombie survival guide and put them in a graphic novel form. I've had them illustrated. Uh, and they are zombie attacks throughout history, from the Stone Age uh, to the present age. Uh, I incredibly illustrated Ibrahim Robertson. I, the illustrations are phenomenal. He's amazing. He's I I picked him out of a huge stack of potential artists. I think this is his first big gig. I've never met the man. He lives in Brazil, and we have been communicating by email. And it's his art is just stunning. Uh, I think the book is really stunning. I'm somewhat disinclined to enjoy graphic novels, but I think this is definitely something that's worth reading. And, and one of the things I like about this is, again, I think in the, in these uh, visually created pieces, your in, your really interesting sense of story comes out. Again, some of these are almost just like little snapshots. There's a little snapshot of Egyptians, and you raise just raise a question, and, and it's like a little three-page thing. Uh, could but where it gets a lot of the power, I think, um, in this book, is the sense of the layout. So could you talk about uh, collaborating with with Ibrahim on this? I've never done so much work. Uh, I did more work on this than I did on on World War Z, because when you write a novel, you only put in as much information as is pertinent. Uh, But when you write a graphic novel, when you write a comic book, you have to describe everything, because there it is. It's all laid out. So I didn't want to just... Uh, leave anything to chance. You have to describe the point of view. Are you zooming in? Are you zooming out? Uh, where's the light? Where's the shadow? What are the people wearing? What's the architecture like? What do the weapons look like? I mean, I really had to to get visual research and, and write, oh my God, I would say every one minute of inspiration, 99 minutes of perspiration. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it really shows. I think that the uh, the layout of this is very is really nice, and uh, your publisher's done a good job too. It's published well, so you can actually look at it. The book lays down, and and you can actually see the the pictures and stuff, which is actually pretty nice. Oh, thank you, thank you. 
I always wanted to do, I always wanted to see these stories. When I wrote Zombie Survival Guide, I mm -hmm. always wanted to come back to these stories and I wanted to see them illustrated. So, you know, this is, this was very special for me. Now, I understand, uh, well, that um, there's a script for World War Z. There is. There is a movie deal with Brad Pitt's company, Plan B. Uh, there is a director, Mark Forster. Wow. Mark uh, Forster. That's what I said. Uh, just had lunch with him a few days ago. Uh, very nice man. He's either the world's greatest con artist or he legitimately loves the book and wants to make this movie. Wow. Now, uh, this is a movie that, I, this is a book that I think would be somewhat difficult to film. So tell us uh, how they're capturing the essence of the book. Well, I can tell you that the first draft I read was by J. Michael Straczynski, who did Babylon 5. Wow. And he's, he's amazing. I'm mm -hmm. such a huge fan of his. And he coalesced it into the story of the narrator mm -hmm. uh, who is looking, trying to go back after the war is over and uncover these stories. Uh, and he just did a magnificent job. The first draft was, was, was so beautiful. And I can't comment on all the subsequent drafts because I haven't seen any of them. Uh, there's a new writer now, Matt Carnahan. He's writing a new draft, and mm -hmm. uh, we should get it in a couple weeks. And let's let's see if the studios like it. Let's see if Forrester likes it. Boy, well, that sounds like really, really fun. Are you working on another uh, work set in your zombie apocalypse? Well, I, I'm writing another. I finished another graphic novel, which is being illustrated right now. Not zombies. Mm -hmm. Not even fictional. It's a. It's historical. Oh, really? What the, What part of history can you tell us? I can't tell you, but uh, I. Well, uh, it, there's war involved and people die. <laughs> That's as far as I can go. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not surprised. It's pretty conflicted. Uh, and now, uh, in addition to war, I seem to have war on the brain, I'm also doing a six-part comic book miniseries for G.I. Joe. Really? I'm Yes, I, the series of my youth is being revamped, and, and they asked me to contribute. So you were a G.I. Joe fan as a kid? I was, I was. And unfortunately, Hasbro wouldn't print my, uh, my slogan that I wanted to put for my miniseries. Which was? This time people are going to die. <laughs> well, I suppose that's not surprising. No, no, it is a toy company. But I wanted I wanted to make G.I. Joe real. You know, most of the people who are reading G.I. Joe now are in my age, the 30s and 40s. We're not kids anymore, and we don't expect to be treated like that. So I wanted to make it very realistic, especially now. I mean, let's face it. We're in two wars. Uh, if you're going to write a war comic, you better make it real. I would imagine that would be a good idea. Oh, yeah. I've been speaking with Max Brooks. He's the author of World War Z. His newest book is Recorded Attacks, The Zombie Survival Guide. He's also the author of The Zombie Survival Guide. Thank you for speaking with me, Max. My pleasure. Thank you. On the open road, I at least had a chance of dodging them. But on the on-ramp, you're hemmed in on either side. That was the worst part. By far, those few minutes trying to get up onto the freeway. I had to go in between cars. My ankle wouldn't let me get on top of them. These rotting hands would reach out for me, grabbing my flight suit or my wrist. Every headshot cost me seconds that I didn't have. The steep incline was already slowing me down. My ankle was throbbing, my lungs were aching, and the swarm was now gaining on me fast. If it hadn't been for Metz, she was shouting at me the whole time, Move your ass! She was getting pretty raw by then. Don't you dare quit! Don't you dare crap out on me! She never let up, never gave an inch. What are you, some little weak victim? At that point,
point, I thought I was. I knew I could never make it. The exhaustion, the pain, it was more than anything. I think the anger. I actually considered turning my pistol around, wanting to punish myself for, you know. And then Metz really hit me. She roared. Were you, your fucking mother? That did it. I hauled ass right up onto the interstate. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.